All right, last week we started a new series called Hidden Figures, Women of the Bible Who Are Turning Power Upside Down. And we talked about some of the patriarchy that exists not only in our world, but in the church. Um, And we looked at the story of Adam and Eve and talked about how that has been used to subjugate women and how there are some other interpretations to look at within that story that actually elevate the role of women. And this week, we are continuing to kind of look at the trajectory of patriarchy within Christianity and the church. Um, And this view of women being less than men was not just a... Um, a Christian idea. It was just cultural throughout the world and throughout history. Aristotle in the fourth century BC before Jesus said, the female is a female by virtue of a certain lack of qualities. We should regard the female nature as afflicted with a natural defectiveness. That idea kind of permeated the culture of the, all across the world, especially the Greco-Roman world. The 19th century philosopher Nietzsche said, when a woman has scholarly inclinations, there is usually something wrong with her sexual organs. I think it's something, what did you say? Coward, yeah, it's offensive. I think today it's something like 60% of people who have a master's degree are women. (laughs) Women tend to be more scholarly than men. Uh, Catherine... Schweitzer was uh, the first woman to run the Boston Marathon in 1967. And it was illegal for a woman to run a marathon back then. Uh, She shared some advice that her running coach gave her. He told me that women are too weak and fragile and I might injure myself or my reproductive organs would get damaged. That was the myth at the time. Women are too fragile to run a marathon. So she went ahead and ran anyway, and um, this is a picture of a man trying to pull her off uh, the the marathon track, the Boston Marathon. um, I think Catherine's boyfriend ran on to the track and tackled the guy (laughs) to protect her. Um, But it, it was offensive to men that a woman would run in a marathon. That wasn't too long ago, 1967. There's an analysis done by Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce that said that more than one in eight Americans believe women are not as emotionally suited as men to run for political office. They surveyed female politicians around the world in 2018, and around half of them had experienced abuse in political office, including threats of violence, assault, and even rape. This guy is, I don't know how to pronounce his name, and honestly, I got so mad by what he said, I didn't even want to look up how to pronounce his name. He is a, he is a European Parliament member. He's Polish. He said, of course, women must earn less than men because they are weaker. They are smaller. They are less intelligent, so they must earn less. That's all. He's still in the European Parliament. You all know the name Mark Driscoll. He's a Christian pastor. Uh, Those of you who've been in the Seattle area a while, he started Mars Hill Church. Mark Driscoll said, women will be saved by going back to that role that God has chosen for them. Ladies, if the hair on the back of your neck stands up, it is because you are fighting your role in the scripture. 
if the hair, the hair on my neck stood up because it pisses me off <laughs> that he said that because there's something in my gut that says that's not Christ-like. That's not what God desires. So what role in scripture is Mark talking about? James Fowler is a theologian. He said, the holiness of God is not evidenced in women when they are brash, brassy, boisterous, brazen, headstrong, or strong-willed. Rather, women accept God's holy order and character by being humbly and unobtrusively respectful and receptive in functional subordination to God, church, leadership, and husbands. What do you feel when you hear and read these statements? Shout it out. You want to throw up. You have a visceral reaction, physical reaction. What else? Anger. What was that? You want to fight it. You want to attack that mentality. It's painful to read. Is that really God's word about women? Is that really the role of women according to God? Or is it man's word? The last week we talked about how the Bible was primarily written by men in a patriarchal world. Um, It was later translated from Hebrew, Aramaic, into Greek, and then into Latin, into German, into English, all translated by men, Um, and men living in patriarchal societies. But what's interesting is that even within this text of the Bible, we find evidence, I believe, of God's desire to empower women within those patriarchal cultures. And we're going to look at a story today from Judges 4 and 5, which is a book in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, Judges records a period of time in history in the area of Palestine um, around 1,000 to 1,200 BCE, 3,000 years ago, a long time ago. Um, There was a tribal group called the Israelites, and it was a very tribal and violent world. Um, There is a passage in Samuel about David around this time that says, it was springtime when the men went off to war, as if it's spring, so we just go to war because that's what you do now that it's nice out. You go to war just like you go to the store to get milk. It's just what you do. Everyone was constantly at war. It was a violent, violent world. During this time, the Israelites were at odds with a more powerful uh, force called the Canaanites. The Canaanites had better technology. They had more people. They had more resources. They were more of like a city-state group, and the Israelites were more tribal farmers. Um, So Judges 4 sets up the story. The Israelites cried out to the Lord for help, for he the leader of uh, the Canaanites, had 900 chariots of iron and had oppressed the Israelites cruelly for 20 years. This was a hopeless situation for a tribal group of people who were farmers to face 900 chariots. So Judges 4.4, the next verse, says, At that time, Deborah, a prophetess, wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel. Deborah, as you may know, is a female name. Deborah was a woman. The Hebrew for Deborah is bee, like the insect bee. Deborah was the original queen bee. It was not Beyonce. 
It was Deborah in the Bible. Deborah was a judge. And you hear judge today and you think judgmental or judgy. Deborah wasn't judgy. Um, Deborah wasn't Judge Judy. Um, the word for judge in Hebrew means a ruler. So part of her role was to discern um, right and wrong in situations. So people would bring their civil issues and she would judge what is fair here. She also had the role of governing Israel. She was the woman president of God's people in the 1000 BC or so, 1100 BC. The judges of Israel, were, um, they were the ones in charge. So go back to the verse. Prophetess means she spoke on behalf of God. Typically, that was the role of a man, but not for Deborah. Deborah spoke on behalf of God. Deborah was the wife of Lapidoth. What's interesting about that phrase is the word in Hebrew for wife is the same word as woman. Woman of Lapidoth. The word Lapidoth is a female plural noun in Hebrew. It's not necessarily a, a man. It's a female plural noun. What does Lapidoth mean? It means uh, torches or flames or fire. So ways to interpret or translate that would be woman of the town Lapidoth, woman of the man Lapidoth, or wife of the man Lapidoth, or woman of torches, meaning fiery woman. I think a better translation, and uh, many scholars agree, is that Lapidoth is not a man, and that the word for woman should be translated as woman, not wife. Why do you think that phrase was translated wife of Lapidoth instead of fiery woman? (laughs) Is it possible that it's because men translated Hebrew into English? I wonder if... The translators were trying to put Deborah in her place, what they thought was her place. I think that's a mistranslation. Matthew Henry was a theologian from the 17th century uh, Presbyterian minister. He said, based on the Hebrew for Lapidoth, meaning torch, that she was a woman of illuminations, one that was extraordinarily knowing and wise. And I think that's a better translation for that phrase. She was a fiery woman, a woman of illumination. So Deborah, in this story, summons a guy named Barak to be the general of the military forces of Israel and tells Barak that Yahweh, the God of Israel, commands you to take 10,000 people and face the Canaanite army. The leader of the Canaanite army was Sisera. So take 10,000 people and meet Sisera and his 900 chariots. And the story seems to follow this expected pattern of the man being told to go off to war while the woman cheers him on. But in this next verse, it says, Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. The man needed the help of the woman. And uh, some older translations of the Hebrew have in the, or it was the Greek and the Septuagint have him saying essentially because he needed her to uh, be the voice of God so he could know what to do during this battle. 
If you'll go with me, I'll go. But if you will not go, I will not go. And so Deborah says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. That is not an honorable thing for a man to lose the glory of the battle to a woman. So it's interesting that Deborah says that. So this whole tale of male heroism has completely been turned on its head. Verse 15, the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and all his army into a panic before Barak. Barak and the 10,000 men are heading onto the battlefield. And before Barak even gets there, God sends the enemy army into a complete panic and chaos. And they're stabbing each other with their swords and they don't know what's going on. Sisera gets down from his chariot and runs away. Barak doesn't win the battle here. Before Barak and the army even get there, God throws the enemy army into a panic. So Sisera runs away, and he comes across this uh, village of tents. Um, There are a lot of tent communities back then, just like the Bedouin people today in the Middle East are tent communities. Yael was a woman who was uh, responsible for setting up the tents. She went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So Sisera entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please get me some water. So she opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. This is an interesting picture. One, he asks for water. She gives him milk. Why does she give him milk? What do you drink at night when you want to go to sleep? You drink a nice warm glass of milk. Yael wanted to put Sisera to sleep. (laughs) It's almost like a mother who is comforting a child in bed as she tucks him in. Sisera says, stand in the doorway of the tent, and if someone comes by and asks, is anyone in there, say no. He's trying to hide from Barak. But Yael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. And she drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. This is not a children's story, is it? Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Yael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. Yael was responsible for setting up the tents. She knew how to handle a hammer and a tent peg. Sisera was laying on his side. She stealthily snuck up to him. And place the tent peg right over his temple, grab the hammer, and one time through into the ground. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. The man did not have the glory of this battle, it was God who used a woman. And we don't celebrate violence in this story. We read the story as a product of its time in a violent, violent world. But we do celebrate God's elevation and empowerment of women 
within a very patriarchal culture and world. That is something we do celebrate. And after this, it says the land rested for 40 years. Gosh, this is, to me, a monumental thing that this story is found and existed and survived through sacred scripture. This is evidence of God's desire to elevate women in a patriarchal world. The next chapter in chapter 5 is a song. It's called the Song of Deborah. And it's been attributed to Deborah. And it is the oldest text that we have in the Bible. And it dates to somewhere around 11 to 1200 BC. The same time period when this story happened. And the Hebrew is very confusing and it's old. Um, But it's a powerful statement of a woman's song being recorded from 1200 BC that still exists today that has been read and sung in liturgies uh, throughout history. Deborah was a judge, a president, a warrior, a military leader, and a poet. She is a woman that we celebrate today. She is evidence that women carry out the will of God in history, not just men. That is counterculture. Even today, when it's understood that women do not have the same strength and intelligence as men, so it's claimed even today. Stories of Deborah and so many others prove otherwise. Why do you think this story has been absent in so many church pulpits? Kylie and I were talking about this story. Um, We have no memory of learning this story growing up in church. Do you all... Were you familiar with this story growing up in church? Have you heard a sermon on this from a pastor? Why do you think that is? Do you have any thoughts? Shout them out. We're a small group. We can have some group discussion. Doesn't serve the patriarchy agenda. It goes 100% against the patriarchy agenda. I guess I may not have learned it in Sunday school because we don't typically want to tell our little kids stories of driving tent pegs through people's heads. But even in big church, what we call it adult church, we never heard sermons on this. Starting in the 1600s, women... um, began to be more educated and literate. And as women started to read the Bible for themselves, they came across the story of Deborah and Judges, and it empowered them. And they used the story to uh, defend their right to be a part of um, society and to be a part of politics. In the uh, 18th 18th and 19th century, Women use the story of Deborah to defend their right to be uh, outspoken in church. And they had been told for so long that women need to keep silent in church. And they said, what about Deborah, <laughs> who spoke on behalf of God 
How can you tell me to be silent while this story is in your sacred scripture? And those opposed to uh, women voting in the 1800s and early 1900s, um, or those fought for women voters, use this story. Um, I want to share a couple quotes from that time. J.B. Sanford was chairman of the Democratic Caucus and a senator in 1911. Politics is no place for a woman. The mother's influence is needed in the home. She can do little good by gadding the streets and neglecting her children. Let her teach her daughters that modesty, patience, and gentleness are the charms of a woman. Let the manly men and the womanly women defeat this amendment and keep women where she belongs in order that she may retain the respect of all mankind. And the suffragists said, what about Deborah? <laughs> this is a picture of the headquarters of the National Association opposed to women's suffrage. It's a row of men looking at the reading materials as a woman walks by. This was an anti-suffragist poster a woman's mind magnified. It's a picture of a woman and her head enlarged, and it shows what's inside her head, what women think about. They think about hats and fashion. They think about kids and babies and puppies and chocolates and letters. They think about gossiping, and they think about romance and men. And this poster was used to prove this is why women should not be voting, because this is all they think about. And the suffragist said, what about Deborah? The poet, the judge, the president of God's people who spoke on behalf of God. She was a prophetess. Elizabeth Stanton, who fought so hard for women's rights and equality in the early 1900s, said, we never hear sermons pointing women to the heroic virtues of Deborah is worthy of their invitation. Nothing is said in the pulpit to rouse them from the apathy of ages, to inspire them to do and dare great things, to intellectual and spiritual achievements and real communion with the great spirit of the universe. Oh, no. The lessons doled out to women from the canon law, the Bible, the prayer books, and the catechisms are meekness and self-abnegation ever with covered heads, a badge of servitude to do some humble service for a man. Claire Naaman was a suffragist who said, if Deborah, way back in ancient Judaism, was considered wise enough to advise her people in time of need and distress, why is it that at the end of the 19th century and at the beginning of the 20th century, I might add, Woman has to contend for equal rights and fight to regain every inch of ground she has lost since then. A hundred years ago in 1920, passed the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote, which took too long. We still have a ways to go. We need to hear Deborah's story and the countless others to remind us of God's declaration of women's worth and strength and power in this world. These women who have 
fought so hard for women's equality and rights are known in history as Deborah's daughters. You all are Deborah's daughters and sons because you represent Deborah's power and dignity and worth as found in the Hebrew scriptures that exists within all women. All straight, gay, transgender women of all colors. We are Deborah's sons and daughters because we have a long ways to go before we get to equality. But that is God's dream for this world. I believe that was God's plan. And this is not a man's world. This is God's world. And in God's world, there is dignity and respect and love for all humans, for all creation. So let's not follow the culture of the world. We follow the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is one of... uh, Love and dignity and respect for women. The way that he uh, treated and embraced women when he, during his ministry on earth. Um, it was women who, we'll talk about some of their stories in the next few weeks, but it was women who funded Jesus' ministry. Jesus would not have been able to do the stuff he did if it weren't for women. Um, and it was women, or Jesus empowering them to do that and to support him. And so this gathering around the table that we do every week is a representation that all people, men and women, have equality in the eyes of God. And so when we take communion together, we celebrate that and we honor that and we say amen to that, which is Greek for let it be. Let it be equality for both men and for women. And with that around the table, as we take communion We name some of the abuse that's been done and that is currently done toward women. We name it and we talk about it and we figure out what to do about it and how to move forward in this world representing the way of Jesus, not the way of men and the way of the world. So we'll receive communion where everyone is welcome to the table. He took the wine, he poured it out, said, this is my blood poured out for you every time you drink. Remember me. Remember the new covenant. The new covenant for the followers of Jesus meant that nothing that the world says, including men, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That was the new covenant. And so we drink remembrance of Christ. God, may we be your hands and feet to empower all of those in our society and community who feel powerless. May we give voice to the voiceless. 
And when we experience, whether it's in with own, our own hearts and words and minds or, or in the minds and hearts and words of others, when we experience uh, the inequality, uh, abuse toward other human beings, toward women, give us the courage to stand up to that, to call it out, to name it. Give us the wisdom to do that in a way of love that is transformative and healing. As you have called us to do that. That is our role, part of our role in this world. Thank you for that call. We thank you for where you are taking us in our lives, that you are taking us somewhere. You are taking this world somewhere toward wholeness. And so for that, we say thank you. And this communion is an expression of that thanks. And in Christ's name, we pray, everybody said, and everybody said, amen. <laughs> Let's get some energy here, right? Amen. It's, a, it's okay to be a little charismatic. It's an exciting, uh, important role that we have. We should have some energy around it. So thank you all for being here and braving the coronavirus. And we'll see you next week. And also, next week we have a special performance by Kylie Wright, who will be singing a Taylor Swift song. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know that? This is the first you're hearing about that? We were going to do it today, but we didn't. So we'll see you next time.